0: Michael, this is all very confusing. The repercussions of the COVID pandemic have been vast. And one that has been up front and center is the reshaping of the American job market. With government-mandated shutdowns, businesses were forced to find alternative methods to keep the metaphorical doors open. One such way was to alter their structure to provide a solution by which employees could temporarily work from home. But this seemingly temporary accommodation has inadvertently created fundamental changes that may prove to last a bit longer than anyone realized. In a matter of months, negotiating leverage has shifted away from employers and over to employees. The results of that power shift can be seen throughout the entire job market, but none so evident as the so-called Great Resignation. But over the past few months, there has been a lot of debate in the media in regards to whether or not that leverage is shifting back to the employer. I'm Remy Bartolotta and this is On Markets presented by Darwin Wealth Management and Darwin Asset Management. With me today, I have Chief Investment Officer Michael Sorrentino, Senior Financial Advisor Michael Bartolotta, and Blair Lewis, President and Founder of Global Recruiters Cities. If you have any questions, comments, or maybe just a suggestion for a topic for our next episode. Email comments at onmarkets.com or hit me up directly at remy at onmarkets.com. And as always, if you like our podcast, help us out and hit that follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. So before we begin our main topic of the day, I mentioned that we have Blair Lewis with us. Blair runs an employee recruiting firm in Dallas, so I guess outside of Dallas, Blair, are we even allowed to call it a recruiting firm these days? Or I feel like it's like too harsh for the times we live in.
1: I feel like we have to say some watered down version of that. <laughs> no, no. You know, it's funny is a lot of times people will go, Blair, is it okay if I call you a headhunter? And I and I say, yeah, I actually kind of like that term. I feel like I'm going out and hunting somebody. And, that, and so, yeah, recruiter is exactly, I think that's the official word, uh, executive recruiter. Yeah. Cool. So,
0: and if I'm not mistaken, you're approaching uh, your, your 10th year anniversary with your, with your firm, correct?
1: Yep. We'll celebrate 10 years in February. I, I bought the practice on Valentine's Day, and uh, it felt like bloody Valentine's for sure for the first couple of years of starting a new business. But uh, it, if we got through that hard part, 2020, which you just referenced in the intro uh, – I went right back to, to, to to feeling like a beginner again and suffering through it as no one hired for six to eight months. And, and, uh, but now we're, you know, we're still sort of unwinding from that backlog of, of not hiring. Cool. So why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of why you got into the world
0: of headhunting hunting and tell us your story.
1: Yeah, uh, so I was a mutual fund wholesaler for 20 years. Uh, for those of you that are maybe unfamiliar with that, basically, mutual funds have a salesperson who goes around and meets with financial advisors like, uh, uh, well, I guess Michael was the only one introduced as as officially that, but meets with financial professionals to put your product in front of financial advisors and get some eyes on it, right, and have them determine whether or not it's right for their clients. So I did that for 20 years and and really liked it. But in 2008, 2009, uh, we had this big, you know, financial crisis. A big pullback. People, uh, financial advisors, and their clients alike, uh, really started getting into the details because what we figured out as a investment public is we didn't know what we owned, right? Oh, what, you, what are these derivatives? What are all these, uh, you know, things that are in my account? I didn't know they were there, and so people really began getting into the fine-tuned details of what was in their portfolios, and. I would describe me as a big picture guy. I'm not a details guy. You know, I leave that up to the, the Sorrentino's of the world who, who can get into the details and and figure out what uh, all those good things are uh, within a portfolio. And so I found myself always in the number one or number two guy at my firm. And suddenly I found myself right in the middle of the pack as everyone was getting SEMA's and CFA's and they were trying you know, desperately to understand what they were investing in. Uh, I was more like, well, can we just go to dinner and have fun? Uh, What what about story time? And and so I became pretty average. I just don't have a love for the capital markets the way some of my peers did. And those peers who really loved it, uh, they they rose up uh, much higher than me. And so I started feeling pretty burned out by the whole situation. I remember, if you guys know Camus, uh, the wine uh, wine company, Camus came to Dallas and they did this uh, wine pairing dinner at Pappas Brothers Steakhouse, which for you Tampa guys would be the equivalent of like Burns or something like that. And um, so I was super excited. I got four tickets and I was calling all these financial advisors, and I had like twenty five rejections. And I was like, "Who's getting rejected?" for a Camus wine pairing at the best steak place in Dallas. I mean, this is insane. But it was 2009 and financial advisors were so worn out. They didn't want to go out anymore. And I thought, man, I think I've gotten as much joy out of this career as I, as I can. So, so when you said, how did you find wholesaling or recruiting uh, from wholesaling? It really, it was, uh, I had had three jobs in my career. They all came from a recruiter. So I kind of had a positive outlook on the role. Uh, I was kind of in flux. I didn't really know what to do. So I went to this uh, this guy that would do all these aptitude testing and I spent three days taking tests and building blocks and putting together puzzles and, and, um, and all these different things for three days. And this report came back of all these jobs I would be good at. And the re, uh, there were three lists uh, that were in priority, and all three lists had recruiter uh, on there. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, I like recruiting. Uh, it shows up here. I'll look into it. So I ended up buying a franchise because if there's anything I know about me that is certain, that is, if you give me a process, I can work it. I can refine it. I can make it better. But if you send me a, a, an empty piece of paper and you say, Blair, sketch me out something great, build something from scratch, I will fail at that task. So I bought a franchise that could teach me how to recruit, that could do the back office and some of those you know, support tasks. And and that was the way I chose to do. So I created Global Recruiters of Mid-Cities because I live right between Dallas and Fort Worth. So I just call it Mid-Cities. But Global Recruiters is a uh, franchise model for recruiting it's based out of Chicago.
0: And Blair, you sent us over a handful of, uh, of staff members as well. So we can vouch for your for your value.
1: Well, thanks. I, I enjoy working with you guys because you guys are the rare breed that gives good feedback, uh, <laughs> and that makes me better at my craft. You tell me why people aren't doing well in the interview, or why they are doing well, so I can go, "Oh, okay. Well, let me use that to you know refine the process." I rarely hear people say that they like our <laughs> feedback, so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so you like that? I'm I'm kind of surprised about that. Usually, it's like less feedback, please.
1: I have pretty thick skin, and I, I'm one of those believers in in refining a process. Like I said, if you give me a process, I can figure it out and I can refine it. And I don't know how to refine this process without feedback, uh, and I get pretty frustrated with clients that, <laughs> that that don't provide any. I snap at them. So uh, so I, I'm I'm constantly looking for clients like y'all. Uh, so yeah, maybe I'm a rare breed, but but I love it. Let's start out by
0: talking about sort of the the initial uh, power shift or the initial leverage shift, which was really sort of a a power shift from the employer to the employee, right? When the pandemic hit, it was significant. Why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of how that played out and and what that power shift looked like?
1: Well, the, the number one was there were pockets of the United States that acted differently, right? So... I would be recruiting in Texas or in Florida and I could recruit in office positions. Not a lot changed, uh, you know, for six months or so, uh, you know, that people were working from home for certain, but then they got back to it quicker. Other areas of the country were, were slower. So you had all of a sudden you had this bifurcated or, you know, or, or, you know, much more than that probably, but, but yet you, you had these different zones that were hiring completely different. And a lot of this, uh, Desire to work from home really began, and so I was always very reluctant to have employees personally work from home. I felt like they needed to be around me, needed to kind of hear me on the phone. I needed to hear them and train them, and and suddenly we were all uh, working apart, and and I realized, well, that's a lot of money in my pocket. I don't have to. Uh, I don't have to pay the the mortgage. I don't have to pay for these complicated phone systems and and all of this. I can just pay for everyone's cell phone. Uh, so. I, I began to realize some cost benefits on my own, but the biggest thing that I recognized was when I called people for a job, they all wanted to know, is this a remote role? So you mentioned earlier, I've been at this for about 10 years. For eight of those years, I never heard that request one time. You know, No one ever said, can I work from home? Uh, the answer was just always a resounding no, uh, had they asked. But suddenly there was this pressure from the candidate side to work from home, and even if it was philosophically different than the owners of the business or the hiring managers, uh, to get sort of a generic term, they might have been in a state or a city that weren't, wasn't going to allow them to come in. you know. And so that was the biggest power shift I saw was the demand of people wanting to work in a certain format, uh, which was usually from home, versus the demand of the hiring manager wanting them to come into the office. And so that power struggle really began to to show itself and to change the market quite a bit. I will say I tend to recruit for smaller firms, and so I don't have a lot of people who hire remote positions. I, I still have a lot of clients that want everyone to come in. So for me personally, I've had to talk to more candidates in order to find someone that was willing to work in in an office situation. So it just meant more volume for me uh, you know, on my side of the, of the docket.
2: So I was going to ask Blair, you know, you guys like me, I'm, I'm, I'm an older guy. I'm I'm a little bit old school when it comes to that stuff. I've I've been pretty steadfast. I want, you know, I want to work in an office with people and I don't want to work remotely. Right. I I want to work in an office. I like the office environment. I like the camaraderie. I like being able to, you know, walk into somebody's office and say, Hey, you know, whatever. But, you know, I have found that it's even created a, a, a little bit of a, of a, I wouldn't say disagreement, but uh, it's generated conversation between, you know, Remy and Tino and I, I think I've been more the advocate of, I want, you know, on somebody in the office. I think Remy's been a little more uh, open to the idea of, of creating sort of a, you know, more of a hybrid role sort of thing. And what my my question is, is, you know, guys like me, do you see them or did you see them sort of relenting or did you see people sort of digging their heels in?
1: Yeah, uh, mostly digging their digging their heels in. Um,
2: so I'm not alone, basically. You're not you're alone.
1: What what I have noticed is that it is splintered a little bit. Sales, marketing, things that need constant refinement and iron sharpening iron and and teams. Those people are way more or way less likely, I should say, to get a role that is remote. That is very much iron sharpens iron. We all need to be in the office and, and building a team. Outliers, a director of finance, you know, one director of finance who's just doing the bookkeeping and financial projections or something like that, and they're not on a team, they've got a lot of power to work remote. You know, so what I've noticed is sort of the lone gunslinger roles uh, that is one person doing a job, they have a lot of leverage to work separate. People who are on teams uh, tend to have less leverage and, and there's more pressure to come in. So what I would say is that a lot of it has, has changed role by role rather than company by company. Uh, but there are a few people like me that have changed their their tune. My f- entire firm is is remote. I've got someone in New York, St. Louis, Oklahoma, and, and I'm in Texas. Uh, so when it sucks, though, Michael, to your point, is when I hire somebody because it's just so hard to fast forward their training remotely. You know, I can't be on a Zoom with them all day. I got to go. I got to go serve my clients. So uh, th- it does have its drawbacks for sure. But mostly, people have dug their heels in.
0: I think there's also a tendency to feel like if you can't see somebody that they're not working, right? Regardless of what what the what the the product is that they're producing, right? It's it's like I can't see you here, so it just feels like even if you're working, you know, as much as you should, or even harder than you should, it, it always feels like, and that person's not working. I've I've worked remotely on and off for probably the past 15 years, and I remember when I first started working remotely. Um, yeah, our office was located in Connecticut, but I was living in Los Angeles at the time. and Mike, you, you'll probably remember man, I used to call the office constantly because like I wanted to make sure that they knew, you know I'm at I'm here, I'm working, you know I' it's like I just find stupid reasons to call in for absolutely no reason at all because you know I wanted to make sure you knew that I was actually sitting there working um, you know but but inevitably it, it is it is challenging because you know it's sort of out of sight out of mind and you don't see anybody. You know, are they really doing what they're supposed to do? I think it's it's tough to sort of shift your mindset to really look at the the result, um, you know, of whatever it is that somebody's supposed to be doing versus, you know, are they there doing it?
2: One of the things I notice is is that applicants, you know, people that we've interviewed, you know, I don't want to say have, have taken on a, a lazy attitude. But, you know, the first interview, it's like there's an expectation that it's Zoom. It's like, yeah, I'm not coming to the office. You know, let's just do a Zoom meeting. You know, and I I personally, I hate that. You know, it just, it feels like, it feels like somebody doesn't really, doesn't really want the job, doesn't want to put their best foot forward. And then the Zoom backgrounds, these guys got all kinds of goofy stuff on the wall behind them and things like that. And it's like, what is the deal with this? Right. I I just. Now I look at that as an advantage.
0: So I love the fact that everybody wants to do a Zoom, a, a, a Zoom interview on the first round. Right. Because it gives you an insight into who you're dealing with. Right. I can see yeah, yeah. Where are you doing that interview? Are you doing it from your car? Have you doing it from the car? Are you doing it from your bedroom? Are you, have you thought about what's behind you? Are you wearing a, a t shirt? Because for some reason, people feel like if it's a Zoom interview, they don't have to dress up. So, are you? Do you look like a slob? Right. There's a
2: ton of. Stuff. It makes for some short interviews. I could tell you that.
0: A hundred percent. It's it's great. They, you, you weed people out real quick and. You know, it's, it's not only a time saver for not having to, to have somebody come in and sit down and, and all this other stuff. It's just a time saver because the interview is quick, right? I can, I can pop up my Zoom. I can do a quick 20-minute interview. I mean, I've had interviews that are shorter than five minutes because I, I, you know, I open it up. I don't even need to say hello. I already know
1: I'm not going to hire you because I can see what's going on behind you. Yeah, very short. <laughs> I, I, I'll back this up with some statistics. Since, and this is me personally, uh, pre-COVID, I averaged 4.5 candidates submitted for every person that got hired. So roughly, I'd have to find four to five candidates to fill a role. The interviews were almost always in person. You know, there was no Zoom previous to, to the pandemic in my career. And so I think people were buttoned up. They were in the office. They were sharp as a tack. And they could close the business quicker. When it moved to Zoom and all of these things started showing up that you guys are talking about, wearing a T-shirt, you're in a loud space, or something weird behind you, uh, you know whatever the situation is, they were just sloppier, they were less on their game, and more people didn't get the second interview than uh, than previous. And so again, it just ended up being something where now now it's taking us six candidates to get to a hire uh, on average. So more work for me, you know, it's the same pay. You know but you know but i think you're you're right people relax a little bit if they're on zoom and it does not help them in the interview process at all
2: so interesting though to remy's point right if it does help you to sort of weed out some of these people that maybe would have put on a really good first impression and you might have hired them is it how is that reflected in the, in the people actually being successful once they've been hired i mean we clearly interview more people but are we more successful in the hires that we make than we would have been pre-zoom
1: our averages are exactly the same uh in terms of the candidates that get there, stick stay and 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 we consider it pretty successful in the modern era if someone gets three or more years uh and our numbers haven't dipped uh in that so it's more interviews and, you know, it's more candidates necessary, but we haven't noticed any, you know, increase or decrease in the success of the candidate once they're in the role. The, the numbers appear at our firm to be, you know, pretty much exactly the same.
2: It'll be interesting to go out like five years from now and look back though, right? If you're judging it over a period of three years, you don't really have the history just yet.
1: All the data is not in, that's for sure. Yeah, but you know, Ribby and I've been through this where someone's great on Zoom and not great in person. You know, we we've we've seen that. You know, you're you're certainly not the only hiring manager that uh, that I've worked with that's like, golly, they're so good on Zoom. <laughs> you know? But yeah, I don't know why why someone would be better on video than in person, but it does exist. To be honest, I,
0: I actually really like this sort of multiple interview format where one is Zoom and one is in person. Because like you said, Blair, it it really, I, I have interviewed people that are great on Zoom and I'm like, I'm ready to hire them. And I meet them in person and I'm like, wow, this is not the person I thought it was, you know, but, but I, I think I've seen the opposite too. I have seen people that, I'm not that impressed I, on, on their Zoom. And I'm, I look around and I'm like, man, this person doesn't look all that prepared. But, you know, for whatever reason, you know, there was some indication that, okay, maybe I should, I should do it in person. And their in-person was significantly better. So, you know, I, I sort of like this, this, this sort of dichotomy of the two, two different types of interviews with the same person, because it really does give you a good glimpse into sort of who that person truly is versus this, you know, sort of their representative,
2: right?
0: The representative they're, they're, they're putting out there in their interview.
1: I heard a, uh, an interview with Zuckerberg uh, the other day, and he was talking about uh, the future where the number one thing they're trying to solve for is in Zoom uh, or any other video uh, conferencing. There's just no eye contact. There's no way to make eye contact, because if you look at the camera, you lose the face of the person you're looking at. So the biggest thing they're trying to figure out from an AI perspective or from a virtual reality, maybe more VR, was how can we be virtual, but yet make eye contact? And so that that was like the biggest task that they were working on for their VR. Um, and it's so true. Um, I don't know what the number is, but I know I'm guilty of this. I sometimes look at myself talking. You know, I'm not even looking at the people I'm talking to. I'm looking at the re- reflection of myself uh, and trying to see how, if I'm behaving correctly. So that is the thing that is so missing that you get in person is whether or not this person makes good eye contact. And good eye contact tends to make you at least feel more trustworthy and therefore if someone has good eye contact they tend to have a better interview yeah there's a lot of little nuances that we'll probably see continue to be refined until you know maybe the uh, you know the copy is just as good as the original but i agree with you remy i i like i like having virtual and i think it's a good combo mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's interesting So this interview went a little bit longer than our standard 20 minute episode. So we're actually gonna cut this into a two-parter. So stay tuned next week for the second part of our interview with Blair Lewis. This podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management LLC and Darwin Advisors LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any investment or or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss, past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.